He has risen just as he told you. So said the angel. What a good thing to say if it's true. He has risen just as he told you. Good news in a world then filled with bad news. Good news in a world today filled with bad news. He has risen just as he told you. This morning we are going to consider the goodness of the resurrection. And I have seven reasons here in my notes that we'll highlight from the Bible that the resurrection is good. So seven reasons that inform us that the resurrection is good. I suppose we could have 70 reasons. We could have 700, 7,000, 700,000. There are lots of reasons the resurrection is good, but we're going to look at some of those reasons, and we're going to be doing so to begin with in the gospel according to Mark that we were just in for scripture reading. So if you want to find Mark's gospel account, you can be getting ready for reason number one, for the goodness that is the resurrection. As you're finding that, uh, I have here in my hot little hand a reminder that we are celebrating the Lord's Supper today at the end of the service. So if you did not pick up one of these on your way in, you can make your way out sometime between now and then and be ready to eat and drink in remembrance of Jesus the way he said we should. And uh, you'll be all prepared for that. So reason number one for us to say the resurrection is good. Reason number one is because it's a miracle. It is a miracle. Not as in the way we talk, oh, it's a miracle that I passed that math class. Or it's a, it's a, it'll be a miracle if it snows on Easter. Well, maybe we shouldn't say that based upon forecast, but you get the idea. It'll be a miracle if something that probably won't happen, happens. Well, in the Bible, well, I, sh- I should rephrase that. In Christianity, we don't speak of miracles in those terms. Miracles are things that can't be explained otherwise. It's not 0.01% probability. It's something that you can't explain uh, in a lab. You can't reproduce it. You can't um, explain it any way other than somehow God had to supernaturally, extraordinarily, uniquely, surprisingly act. God sometimes works in what we call providence. He works through people and circumstances and through natural means. God is at work, like Romans 8 talks about. But there are those other times that aren't normal. They're extra normal. They're extraordinary. They're miraculous. And the resurrection is good because it's the extraordinary action of God to raise his son Jesus from the dead. And we see it, hope you're ready for this, in the white spaces in Mark 16. We see it in what it doesn't say. Now, I'm going to really go out on a limb here and be risky. Um, Today, we are going to talk about what's not at the end of Mark 16. So if you can look in your Bible, uh, probably 99% of your Bibles that you have here today um, have a bracket around verses 9 and following. So after verse 8 of Mark 16, uh, there's a bracket all the way to the very end. Uh, and if you look in your margin, there's a note that says something like this. Some of the earliest manuscripts do not include verses 9 to 20. What an Easter sermon this is going to be. We're going to talk about textual variants and ancient manuscripts. Well, <laughs> it gets good, I promise. What's that about? Huh. What, 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 how did that, why is that even like that? And I think that's a nice way of putting it. They're being nice by saying, uh, some of the earliest manuscripts. If you look at the er- earlier manuscripts, I'm gonna go out on a limb and say better manuscripts, it's, it ends after verse 8. 
It ends abruptly. But I think it ends on purpose that way as a, as a mic drop moment. It's supposed to end that way, and we'll talk about why. But before we do, some of you are thinking, how, how did this even happen? Well, imagine, if you will, this will be fictitious, but you can at least imagine someone with good motives who is a scribe uh, much, much, much later. Uh, but later on, we have a scribe, and the scribe is going to read the gospel accounts. And so the scribe earns his living. He gets his meals and lodging by being a scribe. And the scribe knows Matthew and Luke and John and knows some of the other details from the epistles. And they know there's more to the story. And wouldn't it be good to kind of fill in the details? Because that that would surely help people if we just help the Bible a little bit. Notice that's not really a good idea. Um, Let's just leave the Bible alone and let it defend itself and let people read the other gospel accounts and fill their own minds in. Let's not try to help the Bible out. Um, It's not a good look. So I like it that those brackets are there. Um, It doesn't undermine anything. It actually argues for honesty and authenticity. Okay? So why does it end with a mic drop? Why does it end so abruptly if that's how it should end? No doubt it should end that way if we're looking at the older, better manuscripts. Well, here's why. If we read verse 8, it says, And they went out and fled from the tomb. It's an empty tomb, remember. For trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And here's what that scribe didn't take into account that you can take into account and I can take into account. Mark as a pattern as he's recording things throughout the gospel account. When there's a miracle... Oftentimes, by repetition, he stresses the fact that they're what? They're afraid. So it's a pattern. Miracle, fear. Miracle, fear. Miracle, fear. And now we have resurrection. Miracle, fear. Mic drop. It's how it's supposed to end. Because the resurrection is unexplainable other than a miracle. Well, don't take my word for it. I'll just ever so quickly... Read these. Mark 4.41, Jesus calmed the sea supernaturally and the disciples became very much afraid. Miracle fear. When Jesus walked on water, Mark chapter 6, verse 50, the disciples were terrified. Miracle fear. Mark chapter 6, verse 50, that, I just did that one. Uh, they were terrified. He walks on water. Mark chapter 9, verse 32. Uh, Jesus foretells of his death and resurrection. The disciples were, and I quote, afraid to ask him about it. That's Mark 9, 32. Mark eleven eighteen. 18. Uh, Jesus teaches uniquely, powerfully, extraordinarily. The chief priests and scribes were afraid of him. We get to our resurrection account. Empty tomb, raised from the dead. What might we expect if it's a miracle? They're afraid. It's a miracle. It's unique. It's extraordinary. The triune God raises Jesus from the dead. So I want to highlight that and not say, oh, I I wonder what happened with Mark. I'm so unsettled by that. No, I like it. I like it a lot, as a matter of fact. It carries that great punch with it that this is not something that we can reproduce. This is not something that's ordinary. It's supernatural that Jesus provides resurrection life. Now let's go to number two. I promise no more textual variant talk. Number two. Another reason why the resurrection is good. It's a miracle, but now number two, it showcases God's decree. It showcases God's decree. Again, it might not sound like much of an Easter sermon, 
But if we're going to talk about the king, the sovereign over the whole creation, and he has a decree, think king or queen, when they issue a decree, this is the rule, this is how it's going to be, this is, is what um, is binding... Well, the God of creation, the eternal God, has a decree. He says, here's how it's going to be. And it gets real spicy. It gets real interesting. It gets really good. This not only is God's decree, it's God's eternal decree. Before time as we know it started. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune God the one true and living God, the triune God, decreed to have his son come and suffer a sinner's death, though he never sinned, and to die a sinner's death, though he never sinned, and, you guessed it, to be raised from the dead on behalf of everyone who would ever believe in him for eternal life. Acts chapter 2 is the text. So if you want to go to Acts chapter 2, if you can find that quickly, we're going to read from Acts chapter 2. We were just there not long ago as a church because we're studying through as I called it first hour, the gospel of Acts. <laughs> the good news about Jesus recording through the ministry of the apostles. And where else can we learn about such things? I mean, these are the kinds of things that angels long to look into. That God has a decree and it brings salvation to people. I mean, I realize you're distracted by a lot of other things in life. And I'm distracted by a lot of other things in life, even while I'm preaching. But it, it doesn't get any better than this. I mean, th- there is that rhetorical question, who can know the mind of God? And the implied answer is nobody, but wouldn't you like to? Well, who can know the decree of God? We can. What can be more exciting than that? I promise you nothing. I promise you nothing. Before time begins, there's a purpose and a plan, and it culminates with the resurrection of Jesus. Let's go ahead and look at it here in Acts chapter 2, verse 23. It says, This Jesus, so we're interrupting Peter's sermon and he's preaching. This Jesus delivered up. How? Why? How did this all of this work? According to the definite plan, the decree of God, and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up. Loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. This is, this has been God's purpose all along, God's decree all along, and he elaborates on it. Verse 25 says, For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. That's resurrection talk. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or death or let your Holy One see corruption. That's resurrection talk. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And how are you going to be in the presence of God if you're pushing up the daisies? If you're dead, if you're six feet under, you won't be. This is life talk, resurrection talk. Then 29 says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. And his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn, ah, decree talk again, one of my favorite sermon titles ever, the God who swears. Provocative. Well, not in the other way, but in this way. God swears an oath. God makes a covenant that is not going to be broken. It is God's eternal decree. Before time begins, if you want to be a fancy theologian, they call it God's 
a temporal decree before outside of time as we know it this is the decree god had sworn with an oath now uh, and we keep going to an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne now it's in time actually it was before time earlier but now it's in time that he would set one of his descendants on his throne he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the christ oh that has to do with god's oath originating even before time begins, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. How about verse 32? This Jesus, God raised up, and of that we are all, we all are witnesses. Then he goes on to talk about exaltation at the right hand of the Father. We talk about the promise of the Spirit, so all three members of the triune God are involved. It's extraordinary. It's extraordinarily extraordinary. It's good. The resurrection didn't just happen because God decided to make up a miracle one day. That would be extraordinary, but that's not how God works. It is no wonder that this is what the angels scratch their heads over if they do that. My paraphrase of other New Testament text, these are the things which angels long to look. They want to study this. I don't think we should try to be like angels in everything. Um, we're not going to become angels. You're not going to get your wings. Sorry, Disney. But there are certain things that we would want to imitate angels regarding. They long to look into these matters of redemption. They're fascinated by it. It would be good for us to be fascinated by it too. That God, atemporally, before time begins, Ephesians chapter 1 talks about it as well, purposes, decrees to send his son to be a perfect sacrifice and to be victorious, to be raised from the dead on behalf of everyone who would ever believe. It's really wonderful. It's really amazing. Let's move to another reason why it's wonderful and amazing. And let's just call it good for simplicity. And that's number three. It confirms Jesus. It's a miracle. Yes. It's God's eternal decree. Yes. But it also confirms Jesus. Meaning, it affirms that he's not a liar. It affirms that he wasn't just blowing smoke. It affirms and confirms that he's not like all of these other religious people who've come along and said, I'm the way. Follow me. I've got a special book and I've got special insight. And if you just do what I do and do what I tell you to do and give the money to the right places and to the right people, especially me. <laughs> Though it, always do, it doesn't always work that way. It'll be fine. No, it's not the case. Jesus said, come to me and I will give you rest. Yeah, but how should we trust him? Why should we trust him? He said he would be raised from the dead and he's raised from the dead. Our text that we looked at earlier in Mark 16, verse 7, there you will see him. I love those five words at the end, just as he told you. Jesus, throughout his earthly ministry at different important times, I must be crucified. I must be betrayed and I must be and will be raised from the dead. Today, as we celebrate the resurrection, we're celebrating that Christians aren't idiots. Well, that's a weird way to say it, isn't it? We're saying, you know what? Our faith isn't in faith. Our faith is in a resurrected Savior and he's vindicated. He's 
confirmed, he's affirmed as not being like all of the other religious leaders because he not only said he would be raised from the dead, he actually is raised from the dead. Luke chapter 9 verse 22 says, the son of man, this is quoting Jesus, the son of man, the Messiah, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Well, if he was never raised or never died, I wouldn't trust him. You shouldn't trust him. Just as he told you. We could go to John chapter 2. We won't for the sake of time. But I have, I put all my eggs in, in, in this basket. I didn't even mean to do that. Sorry. <laughs> yes, I am a dad and I have five kids and I have a lot of dad kind of humor, but get your minds out of the gutter. <laughs> If this weren't Easter, I would say, I have all my eggs in one basket. And I will say, I'm trusting in Jesus for my eternal life because he's raised from the dead bodily before eyewitnesses. All my confidence is in him. It's all in him. And for good reason. You can fault Christians for lots of things. You can try to fault Christianity for things. But you can't fault Christianity, biblical Christianity, for being unreasonable. He made the claims, bodily raised from the dead, in time and space and history, before eyewitnesses. It'd be a good idea to trust in him with your eternal destiny. He is confirmed. He is affirmed at the resurrection. Let's move on. Let's move on to number four. Another reason why it's good to celebrate the resurrection because the resurrection is good. Number four, it secures global restoration. It secures, the resurrection secures global, cosmic, worldwide, however, universal, however you want to label it, cosmic, global, worldwide restoration. Colossians 1 is the text that we need to look at to see this. And you're interested in this, even if you don't think you're interested. If I were a betting man, my dad would say. You're interested even if you don't think you're interested. So all of the problems that you have in your life, sorry to take you there, um, Mentally, emotionally, physically, relationally, all the other problems in other people's lives, all of the problems that we have that we hear about, whether it's on the news or on social media, so things like wars, things like famines, things like conflicts, things like suffering, things like the environment, things like politics, and on and on and on and on and on and on, it goes. The death, burial, resurrection of Jesus secures... The fact that all of that in time will be resolved. So if you don't care, you should care. If you care about anything in life that's problematic, you should care about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. How about this? How about this in Colossians 1 verse 15? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Firstborn as in the preeminent one. Sorry, those of you who are secondborn, thirdborn. I'm the thirdborn and the youngest, so I'm the spoiled brat, according to my brother and sister. So if you're offended, I'm offended too. Firstborn isn't talking about that. Firstborn, the, the inheritor, the, the, the leader, the preeminent one, 
And it's used to describe Jesus because he's the preeminent in all the cosmos, not because he's the most important created being. We're going to read in just a second. He's actually the creator. And so he's the preeminent one of all creation because he's the creator himself. But that's not even the part we need to get to yet. It says then, if we keep going, for, this is verse 16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. That's why he's the firstborn, the preeminent one, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. I paused there for a second and hesitated because he's moving from creation and as soon as he starts talking about the body of the church, he's, he's moving from creation to new creation. And now we're getting somewhere. New creation? Yeah, remember back when God made everything and pronounced it what? Good? Uh, dare I say very good? That's not what God says about the world right now. It's fallen and very fallen. But there will come a day because of the new creation, because of the firstborn from the dead, the preeminent one, where God will one day again be able to say, good, no, very good, because it's all going to be resolved in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the head of the new creation, and it starts with the church. Inauguration we talk about sometimes, we're awaiting the consummation at the second coming, but the way the Bible works, the way Christians think, if they're thinking people, not always true, sorry, because of his historic work that's already done, death, burial, resurrection, firstborn from the dead, preeminent from the dead, he is the sovereign of the new creation, starting with life, spiritual life in the church, and it will go beyond that. Let's keep reading. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, preeminent resurrected one, that in everything, notice the universality of it, that in everything he might be preeminent, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things. That's where, that's where I, that's why I included this verse in our list. All things reconciled. How, did, how in the world does that happen? To reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. New creation is certain and secure. How in the world would we know that? It's actually tied to death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Fascinating. Good. Interesting. As one theologian put it, in precisely the same manner the apostle says Christ is the firstborn, not only of creation, but of the new creation. And we wait the, await the consummation. We could go to Romans 8. We won't take the time to go there. But Romans 8 is fascinating because in Romans 8, it's talking about the same thing. But the apostle Paul personifies the creation, giving it like human emotions or, or human actions, just so we can understand how this works. The whole creation, it says, does what? groans. Wait, how long is this going to take for the consummation? But see, in that sense, the whole creation, personified at least, has better theology than lots of people. Because even the, the whole creation knows that it's as sure as done 
It's a matter of waiting for the firstborn from the dead, the preeminent resurrected one, to come and bring about the consummation, new creation. The creation knows. Let's learn from angels today. Let's also learn from the earth, personified, longing, waiting, but not wondering, longing and waiting for something that's actually going to happen. How do we know? Because Jesus lived in this world and he spoke and interpreted the meaning of his living and he was crucified as he said by decree and he was raised from the dead to authenticate the very thing he was talking about. Firstborn from the dead. A lot of problems in this world, big problems in this world, a genuine, legitimate, biblical Christian worldview has an answer. It doesn't mean we shouldn't be good stewards. It doesn't mean we shouldn't do things that we're supposed to do in the meantime. But we're not going to save the world. And we actually can sleep at night at least a little better knowing that ultimately at the return of Christ, all things will be resolved. He stresses it, all things. And you say, what does that have to do with Easter? It has everything to do with Easter. The resurrection of Jesus, he's the firstborn of it all. Newness because of him. At this point in time, the pastor wonders what he said and he hasn't said. Are we on number five? Thank you for that station identification, as they used to say on TV a long time ago. We're doing number five. But before we get to it, how do we cope with the problems and wrongs in the world? Temporarily, we engage. We're to love our neighbor. But ultimately, I know how it's going to end. And I know there is going to be resolution. And that actually helps me to cope. It helps me to not try to take matters into my own hands. One day. One day. All right, let's move on to number five. And I did know where we were. I just wanted to say one more thing about it. Okay. Number five, we see the goodness of the resurrection because it restores freedom. It restores freedom and a kind of freedom that you might not be guessing, but it's freedom that's super important, the most kind of freedom, and that's freedom from being condemned. If you have a Bible, you can find Acts 13. So we were in Acts 2, now Acts 13. And in Acts 13, even if you're an astute Bible scholar, I think I might be able to show you something that you can't at least see at first blush. And for everyone else, I'm going to show you something that will help you to be a better Bible scholar. Okay? We're all learning and growing. But not only that, I hope I'm going to help you see something that not only helps you to know stuff, but helps you to say, I want that. Or I'm so glad. This is really good. Maybe it's better than I thought. So when we look at number five, it restores freedom. Freedom from getting what you deserve. Freedom from condemnation, freedom from coming judgment, uh, freedom from, let's put it this way, freedom from God, because God is our biggest problem, um, freedom from his judgment. I mean, if I weren't a Christian and I were an academic, uh, which I'm not, but if I were not a Christian and I were an academic, I would try to get multiple degrees and write lots of dissertations and uh, theses and all kinds of things and promote, uh, commit my whole life to trying to disprove the existence of God. 
Because if there is a God, I'm in a lot of trouble. If the God is the, the God of the Bible, I'm in deep, deep, deep trouble. God is my problem, my biggest problem, because I've got to give an account. And I haven't loved him with my heart, soul, and mind and strength. And I haven't loved my neighbor as myself, which is the distillation of his requirements. And so I'm busted. Unless there's freedom from condemnation, freedom from God, freedom from getting what you deserve from God. And in Acts 13, oh, I love Acts 13. We've got to read quite a few verses to get to the punchline, but I promise it'll be worth it. Verse 26, brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God do us to us has been sent the message of salvation, salvation from God ultimately. Verse 27, for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath. How about that? They didn't understand, not because they didn't hear, they kept hearing all the time. But, but, but they didn't understand, they didn't embrace it. Fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt, pretty weird when you condemn someone with no guilt, no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. And then verse 30, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. How about verse 32? And we bring you the good news. It is good that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children. How? By raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So his official declaration that his son is the answer was what occurred at the resurrection. Psalm 2 was fulfilled. Today I have begotten you. I've, I've installed you as my king, deliverer, savior. Let's keep going. Verse 34. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. We saw this in Psalm 2. Now we're in Psalm 13. Verse 36 says, For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep, nice way of saying died, and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. So there wasn't fulfillment in the promise made to David. It had to be someone in his line. 37, hang in there. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins, that's violations of God's commandments, is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is, here's our key operative important word worth emboldening, freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. And I put three stars in the margin. I don't know why I didn't put 300 stars in the margin, or at least five. It's, it's better than you might even think. So if the problem is God and I need to be delivered, i.e. he used the word saved, spared, if that's what I need to grapple with, and there we have through the resurrection of Jesus, did you notice he said in verse 38, forgiveness of sins, 
That's what I want. That's what I need. That's why I think the resurrection is good. (laughs) It's really good. Because there's freedom from having sins held against you. So sins are, again, violations of God's commandments. And I have sin. (laughs) I've not done all the things I need to do. I've done other things I shouldn't do. Forgiven. Erased. Not held against me. How could that be? Because Jesus dies a sinner's death, a lawbreaker's death, though he never broke God's law. He fulfilled God's law. And so if I'm trusting in him, his forgiveness, he is extended to me. Atonement has been made, if you want to use the important Bible word. Atonement has been made, and it's always like this. Atonement brings forgiveness. Payment brings forgiveness. It's so good. And how do we know that it's actually true? We know that it's true because he's raised from the dead. He keeps emphasizing resurrection. We've been studying the book of Acts lately, and we've seen so far in every message through into chapter 5, resurrection, 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 resurrection. Guess what we talked about last week, those of you who are visiting? Resurrection. Uh, We're going to finish, we're going to keep going in Acts 5 next week, and guess what's in Acts 5 for next week? Resurrection. Because it's central to Christianity, it's central to meeting our greatest need. It's good. Freedom from having your sins held against you. But you know what? I almost said we haven't even gotten to the good part yet, but actually we have. That's that's half of the good part. It's really good to have forgiveness. Because I really have sin. But there's also another kind of freedom. And now we need to look at verse 39 again. This is worth the price of admission. 39. And by him, everyone who believes or trusts is the idea in him is freed. And some of you will notice in your margin, it might say, can otherwise be translated or something justified. Because it's actually the Greek word that's typically most commonly, I think freed is good, but commonly, most traditionally translated in the English Bible, justified. Both times, two times. Everyone who believes is justified from everything from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. So good, because now, you see, we have the double benefit. The double benefit that we need from the work of Christ, death, burial, and resurrection. So we have forgiveness, atonement, getting rid of the guilt, and and the sins are, are erased. But God doesn't require nothing. He actually requires that we love him and love neighbor. And guess what? That's what's provided in justification. Obligation is met. To be justified, I know it's a big churchy theological word, but it's used so much it's worth you learning if you don't know it. It means to be declared righteous or to be declared a an obeyer of God's law. You say, but I'm not. I'm a sinner. Yep. Me too. The work of Jesus, if you believe, is credited to you. It's applied to you. So you have forgiveness. The bad is erased, not held against you on judgment day. And the positive crediting of Jesus doing all of the right things all of the time in every every single situation. Declared perfect. It's great. It's wonderful. Now, we we don't want to be here too long, lest the the ham burn or whatever is going to happen. Um, Can you burn a ham? Yeah, I knew. 
Sometimes I've had some ham I don't think could ever be burnt, but I digress. Um, <laughs> never at any of your homes. <laughs> okay. Do notice it does say, from which you could not be freed or justified by the law of Moses. See, the law of Moses isn't the problem. The law, of, the, the law is not the problem. It says what's right. And if you do what's right, everything will be good. You and God will be buddies. But the law just tells you what God requires. And you're just going to beat your head against the wall if you try to do that on your own. So you hopefully eventually say, I can't do it. Yep, good job. That's answered prayer. So you say, how then you look outside of yourselves to the one who suffered, died, buried, resurrected. So good. So freedom. Now we could, but we won't for the sake of time. We could talk about freedom from sin's power in the resurrection in Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 7. Eventually we could talk about even freedom from sin's presence and glorification, which is because of the resurrection, but we won't. We need to do number 6, number 7, and then communion. So number 6, sixth reason that the resurrection is good is because it assures justice. It assures justice. I don't want to say always and never, but even some of the most hardened criminals, when you hear them interviewed, who've done horrific, dastardly, horrific, I already said horrific, bad, terrible, unthinkable things, have a sense of they want justice as long as it's for somebody else. I mean, there, there's something in me that when I see injustice, I want, I, I want justice. And it's probably true for you as well, unless you're that calloused. You see something and you know that justice was not, as we might say in old language, meted out. And it rubs you and it troubles you and it bothers you and, and it just makes you angry especially when we're thinking of the the real horrific kinds of things that we all see and they're obvious, I want you to know that in the Christian worldview, according to the Bible, the resurrection is good because it guarantees a coming day of reckoning, a coming day of justice, a coming day of judgment, when perfect justice will be experienced. John chapter 5 is the text I'd like to quote uh, from Jesus. You can take a look if you'd like or you can just listen. But in John chapter 5, Jesus, long before he even goes to the cross, but he knows where he's going. He's already talked about it in chapter 2 in John's gospel account. He's already talked about the resurrection. It's already as good as done, but not done yet. And he talks about there's coming a day that the, where the resurrected Jesus will not only be the Savior. He talks about that in other places. It's true. He's the Savior. You need to trust in Him so that you can have freedom. We just saw that. But also, you need to trust in Him because you you don't want justice. Well, actually, you do want justice. You just don't want justice for you. Right? I don't want what I deserve. I don't want God to give me what He knows is in my heart. (laughs) And neither do you. But I do want justice. How about John chapter 5? John 5 is important when we think through these things. Important for one reason. Otherwise, I might want to take matters into my own hands. I see so many terrible things sometimes. I might want to do unjust things to try to pursue justice. How about John chapter 5 verse 25? 
525, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority, notice here, not to extend salvation, not in this chapter, not in this text, authority to execute judgment. Because he is the Son of Man. He is the King Messiah. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. Pause just for a second. He's doing an interesting thing. He's talking about the the hour now is, but then it's the hour is coming. And he kind of goes back and forth because because of who he is and because of what he knows is going to happen. According to eternal decree, here's how it's going to play itself out. And given what he is doing and will do climactically with the cross and resurrection, it's as sure as done, even though he's going to have an eye toward the end, final judgment. That was like a whole sermon just mixed into one long sentence. (sighs) Man. All who were in the tombs will hear his voice, verse 29, and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And there you have it. And that, it doesn't get much clearer. He's not only the Savior. In this, in this sex text, He is the judge. And a day is coming through the resurrected Savior, because if He's dead, He couldn't do these things. The resurrected Savior, and we could cross-reference to Acts 17 that actually makes the same argument. Judgment day is coming. Because Jesus has been raised from the dead, it's proof judgment day is coming. And here's what's going to happen. People who do good things are going to go to heaven. And people who do bad things are going to go to hell. Hmm. It's that, it's that straightforward? Well, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Yeah, pretty straightforward. Uh, I need to let you know, that's not gospel. That's not good news. <laughs> it's in the gospel according to John, but that's not a gospel text. That's a judgment text. But it's underscoring an important thing, and that's justice. A day is coming when the resurrected Jesus will give people what they deserve. If somebody is executed with the death penalty, there might be justice in a sense if they were a murderer and you could fill in the details. A life for a life. That's not ultimate justice. They just died. I had two sweet little old grandmas who died and they didn't murder anybody or rape anybody, or do any other thing that's horrific. The Bible, according to Jesus, because of the resurrection, assures justice. Now again, that's not good news. That's not a very good Easter sermon. 
That's why you need Christ. It's why you need to trust in Him so you can be forgiven, like we already learned, and not only forgiven, Acts 13, but also declared righteous, set free. It's why you need to trust in Him, and if you don't trust in Him, He's not going to be your Savior one day. He's going to be your judge. But you need to know there is a robust Christian, biblical, from Jesus Himself category, and it ties the empty tomb resurrection I almost pointed to the cross, but it doesn't work. Empty tomb resurrection with the fact he's the judge. And it's important that we know that. And it's important to drive us to Christ. Okay, finally, number seven. Another good reason for the resurrection. Another thing that makes it good, and that's it distinguishes. It separates. It shows the difference the resurrection does between hope and I hope so. Between hope and wishful thinking. Now this is a news flash to lots of people and maybe even to some Christians. Hopefully not you. But if so, you came to the right place. I'm here to help, not to scold. And unbelievers definitely don't understand our vocabulary here. And sometimes Christians aren't helping the cause at all. Hope in the Bible is associated with confidence in the historic life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Hope is confidence in the future because of the sure, actually happened resurrection of Jesus. And so we we need to keep this in mind. It's one thing to say, I hope it doesn't snow on Easter, which somebody told me it was supposed to. I think that's fake news, but anyway. I hope the ham doesn't burn. So I hope the preacher hurries up. Um, I hope I live to be older than 55 because that's when my dad died. I mean, the list could go on and on and on and on and on. That's not what we're talking about. I hope I go to heaven someday. That's not how Christians talk. Our hope is the blessed hope because it's tied actually to bodily resurrection. And so we have in Multiple texts, I'll reference Romans 8 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, maybe just a couple of texts to, to show you this and to highlight this. Resurrection means resurrection for everyone who trusts in Him, not only for Him. 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Here, here, here's why it's good for you. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Get this, the first fruits of, notice belonging, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Like I said earlier, a nice way of saying somebody died, but it's used strategically in the New Testament, maybe even in the Old, they've fallen asleep. There's a hope of resurrection, and not for judgment, resurrection for good. And I love the way the Apostle Paul does it there. He ties the relationship, first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So Jesus is the one who is tied to those who've died, And he goes first, first fruits, the beginning of a harvest, the beginning of others to follow. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. If he's been raised and you're trusting in him, you're going to be raised from the dead. I hope I can be raised someday. That's not the way the Bible uses hope. The Bible uses hope in that fact leads to another fact. Confidence in a fact, a factual person, factual empty tomb leads to factual resurrection, first fruits. So you know the song that sometimes people sing at, at Easter time? 
You ask me how I know he lives? He lives within my heart? That's a nice tune and a nice song. I won't try to sing it for you. But it's terrible theology. It's awful theology. You ask me how I know he lives. Paul says, because it's a fact. Eyewitnesses. Now, that doesn't sound very melodic. <laughs> it's, it's totally different. It's a, it's a fact that this happened. And, and remember, again, Jesus explained what he was going to do, who he was, why he came. And though you die, you will live if you believe in me. John chapter 11, first fruits. So Christians use the word hope, but not the way you use it when you're talking about non-Christian things. Romans chapter 8, verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Romans eight eighteen. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Glory, glorification, better than wings. How about that? Chapter 8, verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. That's glorification. The resurrection is good. It's no wonder that we summarize all of the biblical message as the good news. Because there are more than seven reasons why it's good. It's great news. It's the news you need to hear. It's the, it's the news everybody needs to hear. It gives us confidence even in the midst of the sorrows and the pain, like Romans 8 talks about. Next week in Acts chapter 5, we're going to see and, and read about and learn about the apostles suffering and being persecuted. Because, you know, Jesus died, and there's the tomb, and there's his old rotting body. That's not what gives them confidence. They're willing to proclaim this good news message, even if it means persecution. That's how committed they are to the factuality of it all. Fascinatingly enough. We are going to eat and drink in remembrance of Him, the good one, who does good things for those who trust in Him. And we need to remember that. Let's pray if you would. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for time together. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that he loved us even when we were not his friends. While we were yet sinners. And he gave himself up for us. And that he's been raised for our eternal life. First fruits. There's so many things that fill our hearts and our minds and that distract us and important things and not important things and so many things. Lord, may we, may we be refreshed today spiritually, supernaturally by the power of the Spirit, even as we eat and drink, having heard your word, so that we would leave here thinking differently, living differently, out of hearts filled with gratitude for what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. Thank you for those who've gone before us whether they be in Bible times or afterward, who have promoted the good news of salvation. May we be like them. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.